0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Logan Thompson. I've been a minister here on staff for a little bit over three years. Um, And I'm extremely indebted to this church for a myriad of reasons. Uh, But the first and the foremost is that when I was an intern here, I met my sweet bride, Katie. Uh, We've been married for about two years. Um, and God in his grace has also given us uh, a baby girl, sweet baby Jane. She should be on the screen. There she is, her cheeks in all their glory. Um, If you're asking yourself, was that to butter us up? Yes, yes it was. There's no shame in Jane helping her dad out. Uh, I currently serve as a students minister here, uh, so I help oversee discipleship and formation from sixth to 12th grade as we partner along with parents in that mission. Um, and today, like Jonathan mentioned, we're gonna hit pause in the series of Romans and take two weeks before Advent begins to focus on a timely topic. And, so, and that, that topic will be the spiritual disciplines. And so would you pray with me before we get started? And if you would, would you uh, bow your head, close your eyes, and, and even put your palms upward um, just in a, in a posture of reception? You don't have to, you could stare at me, it'll be our secret. Um, but man, we're embodied souls meaning what we do with our bodies can affect uh, how we feel so we just wanna posture ourselves before the Lord and would you pray for your own heart right now that God would allow you to be present in this room to hear from his word would you pray for your neighbors around you that God would speak to them that he would form them And finally, would you pray for me that I'd be faithful to teach the word of God? Well, God, we love you. We ask that you would move among us today and exceed expectations for your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, it was my last day in England. I had lived there for a full year, and I found myself to be tired and confused, I was physically tired because I had been helping oversee a lot of short-term mission trips that would come over. They would do week-long camps, and I would help facilitate those, so just a lot of work over and over again. And then from an emotional aspect, I was drained because of my 40 friends that we started as a team in England. At this point, everyone else had gone home except for five of us, so it's kind of like the end of Sandlot when everyone's like phasing away, and you're the last one with the ball. Um, so I just felt emotionally tired and physically tired, but I also felt confused. Right? I had just spent a year pouring into people over there, and I knew God was calling me to come back here, but there was doubt. Like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I read this wrong, and uh, my, my boss didn't help the situation. He was like, hey, you know, I could flip a visa. You could stay for two more years. You could stay if you wanted to. I was like, thank you. That's really helpful in this confusing time in my life, um, and, and I had four teammates with me, and we were all feeling the same thing. It was the last day we were there. We were about to go home tomorrow. Um, and at the end of the night, uh, we were going to go to dinner with a short-term mission trip from Florida. Uh, and just, just in a real honest moment on the side where no one else was, we were like, man, we just wish we didn't have to drive with this group up to dinner. They're just loud. A lot of characters. We're tired. And then out of God's providence, Mike, my boss, walks around the corner. He's like, Hey you guys want to ride with me in my van? No one else is going with me. We're like, yeah, we do. Come on. So we're, in the, we're driving up, and um, Mike's the radio's on. He cannot hear our conversation. And I was like, wouldn't it be great like if Mike's wife Also came with us. like She's so godly and kind, and she makes the best food. And uh, sure enough, on cue, Mike turns down the radio. He's like, hey, guys, I'm going to pick my wife up. We're like, yeah, you are. So we're just like, this is getting better and better. And uh, man, we wanted Nando's, which is the uh, chicken restaurant over there. Um, And guess what? We pulled up to Nando's. We finally get into the restaurant, and our final hurdle faced us. Um, And I say this as an American, two Americans, right? This is an observation, not an accusation. We are allowed people, okay? And in Europe, that is exaggerated. And you don't notice it for the, maybe the first few months you're there, but then you start to stick out in crowds. And a table full of 30 Floridians just wasn't really appealing to my tired and confused soul. Um, and again, in God's sweet providence, the waiter comes up. He's like, guys, I'm so sorry. Like, the tables are full down here. You're actually going to have to sit upstairs in a booth yourself. And we're like, we will will bear that burden. Yes, we will (laughs) gladly do that. And God had used ordinary events in our days to invite us closer to himself, to draw us into the rest and the reminder of his kindness and truth that we needed. Why am I telling you this? Well, 2020 has just been a decade of a year, right? There is pandemic tension, racial tension, political tension, There are 50 topics on each of those three things, and it's been hard to know what is true. It's been hard to find rest. But the good news for us in Jesus is that Christ has not only solved our biggest issue of sin and death, which he has, but as his followers, we have the opportunity to daily receive truth and rest that we long for through ordinary habits that we see modeled or encouraged in the scriptures these practices uh, are called a few different things. you call them the spiritual disciplines, habits of grace, or if you're from Portland, practices of Jesus. Sounds a little bit cooler. Um, and they are things that we do in order to grow in our relationship with Jesus from an intimacy standpoint. When I say intimacy, for example, I mean like I take my wife on dates. And the reason that I do that is so that I will love her more and we'll grow closer together. Now, if we don't go on a date one week, we are, like our marriage isn't null and void, right? Like our marriage will continue to survive. But if I don't take her on a date, I am losing an opportunity for us to grow closer in our friendship, in our intimacy. And in the same way, the spiritual disciplines are not required for your faith in Jesus, believer. Like Jesus has given you enough of all of his his action and his life, death, and resurrection has saved you and made you secure, But spiritual disciplines help us with our closeness and our intimacy with Jesus. Without these practices, our opportunities for intimacy with him will dwindle. And so today, and specifically, we are going to be talking about the practice or habit of being in the word of God and how its truth forms us and shapes us. So for the first part, we'll look at John chapter 17. um, And then our second part, we will look at more of the practical aspects. So turn with me to John chapter 17, please. Uh, For context, in John 16, before this, Jesus has been encouraging and exhorting his disciples, warning them of his upcoming departure, preparing him for his death on the cross. And then after this, in John chapter 18, those same disciples will abandon him. One in particular named Judas will betray him. He will be taken to the religious authorities through a lot of shady trials in the Roman government, and he'll ultimately walk to the cross. And so it's between the encouraging of his disciples and the scattering of his disciples that God, Jesus, the Son the Son of God, prays for his disciples. Um, and we get to hear Jesus, who's God the Son, pray to God the Father on behalf of his people. So let's start reading, just for context's sake, in John chapter 17, verse 14. Jesus says this, speaking of his disciples to his Father. I have given them your word And the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So John 17, 17, that's where we're going to be today, just in that verse for the first half of today, asking this question, according to Jesus... What does God's word do in our lives? According to Jesus, what does God's word do in our life? So let's go, first phrase. Jesus says, sanctify them. Sanctify means to set apart or to make holy. So he's asking God the Father to set apart or make holy his disciples. And when it comes to the scriptures, there are two types of sanctification. We first of all have positional sanctification, Right. This is the reality that for those of us who have believed in Jesus, in his life, his death and resurrection, that we've turned from worship of self or something else, else and worship him, God sees us now as being made holy. Past tense, we have been sanctified. It's a one-time act done by Jesus on our behalf. This is positional sanctification. The other type of sanctification is called progressive sanctification or experiential sanctification. And this is the acknowledgement that while we are positionally in Christ, set apart for love and good works, you and I in our day to day relationships, tasks, and thoughts don't look like Jesus. We don't walk in constant holiness. Right, we still snap at our spouses, we still put our identity in our grades or our work or our children. We are in a process. That's what the sanctification is. Sanctification in the progressive sense is a process of becoming what you already are in Christ. Um, so, this, uh, so that over time, by God's grace, we will look more and more like the Jesus who has united himself to us. The Apostle Paul speaks to this in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he says that as we behold the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is an ongoing action of sanctification done by Jesus through us. So when Jesus prays for the sanctification of his followers in this context, it is that of progressive, ongoing work to make us a people who are set apart, distinct, different, and holy. To summarize... Jesus is asking God the Father to change you. Now that can seem a little bit off because if God loves me, why do I have to change? Well, what's important to note here is that the biblical view of love is actually far, far different than a 2020 postmodern American view of love. In the scriptures, love does not equal total affirmation. In the scriptures, love equals total transformation and redemption for those in Christ. For example, you saw Sweet Baby Jane. I love her with all my heart, and I also want her to stop biting my fingers. Right? Like, I think she is the most precious little human being to ever have existed, and I hope that one day she walks. I show her picture to people who do not want to see her picture. And at the same time, I hope she changes. As the saying goes, healthy things grow and growing things change. There will be some things that we need to let go of as we follow Jesus. And there will be other things that we need to start holding on to as we follow Jesus. So to this point, it's clear that God wants his followers and his disciples to be sanctified or made holy in the day to day. But how exactly does this happen in this context? Well, let's look back at John 17, 17. Jesus Christ, sanctify them in the truth. So the means or the way that you and I, believer, can be sanctified is in the truth. Now, we are in a culture that is very uncomfortable with this idea of universal, objective truth that is true for all people, everywhere, every time, over all cultures. To hold this view, at best, is seen narrow-minded, and at worst, to hold this view is seen as dangerous, that it will be used by those in power to oppress the vulnerable or those without power. So we have reacted by cutting out the objective aspect of truth and kept only personal experience. How does this look? Oh, well, that's just your truth, this is my truth. And that approach to truth is good for avoiding conflict, but problematic in about every other instance. Take uh, criminal court cases, for example. When you're looking for a good eyewitness, you need someone who doesn't just feel like the defendant is guilty. But instead, a good eyewitness needs to bring objective truth, such as where they saw the defendant, what time of day was it. But if they only have personal truth and zero facts, then the likelihood of justice being served is slim. You see, the kind of truth that Jesus is presenting here is both personal in that it applies to your life in the day to day, and objective, in that it's real and true regardless of opinions or cultures or uh, contrary thoughts. And John 17:17 17, 17 is actually just one place that we see truth uh, spoken to uh, by Jesus. I would have you look at John 8:32. In John 8:32, Jesus says, "You will know the truth, and the truth." will set you free. You see, truth does not oppress. Truth actually grants freedom. And in the path of sanctification as fathers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit uses truth to set us free from sin. He uses the truth to help us know what is good and beautiful. He uses truth to help us know what is evil and ugly. So at this point, we have seen as fathers of Christ, uh, we need the truth to sanctify us. But what is Truth. Well, one more time, back to the text of John seventeen seventeen. Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is this book, right? Like it is God's word that Jesus is asking God the Father to use in making us a people who are set apart, a people who are being sanctified. It's not just that the Bible contains true items, but that the Bible is actually truth itself and defines truth truth being that which corresponds rightly to reality. In a time of confusion and chaos and fatigue, we are hearing today from the mouth of Jesus that the place we find reliable, universal, objective truth that affects us in our personal lives is found in the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 through 17 echoes this idea, It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So earlier I said we were asking the question, according to Jesus, what does God's word do in our life? The answer from John 17, 17 is that we are transformed by it as we progress towards who we already are in Christ. Now, certainly there are other means of our sanctification, right? There is suffering. There is other people. God himself can do it directly to us. But John 17, 17 has clearly showed us that it is also God's word, the truth of the Bible, that is a primary means that God will use to form us and to shape us as his followers. So now that we've heard from the mouth of Jesus what the Bible's role is in our life, um, I want us to consider in our second part of our time together, what does this actually look like? Like if you believe that if, that it is God's word, that it does transform us, that it does sanctify us, how do we do that tomorrow morning before the kids wake up? Like how do you do that tomorrow on your lunch break? Well, I don't want to. I don't think it would be helpful to give an exact um, prescription about what everyone should do and their exact routine because we have so many different contexts and backgrounds. But I do think we can talk about universal principles that we should have in our approach to God's word. So I have three of those, and we're just going to spend the rest of our time walking through them. So first, as we live out this practice or this habit of being in God's Word, the Bible must be ultimately trusted, ultimately trusted by those who read it. For the Scripture to yield any fruit in our lives, we must approach them in faith and as our highest authority. If we try to come to the Bible without faith, we will not understand it. Right, 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says that the natural person, so this is someone who does not believe in God, who doesn't have faith, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him or her, and he or she is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So faith in God and his word are the only way we can actually rightly understand what the Bible is saying. And at the end of the day, if we come to our Bibles without faith, then it's just another book. Right, like, and, and you can do that. Some people do. Like, You can try and read the Bible without faith, but you are ripping yourself away from the, the following of Jesus. Because when he read his Bible, he read it as ultimate truth from God. Think about when, when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. The devil tempts him three times, and in three times he responds with what? The truth of God's word. Jesus ultimately trusted it. And if it is God's word that we can trust, and it's also our highest authority in life, and by highest authority, I mean like the person or thing that determines the truth and can alone be used as that which settles our, all arguments, debates, decision-making in our life. Now, to say that we have a highest authority can seem strange. We don't like that idea, right? America was like, we rebelled against the king. We don't want a king. That's how our nation was founded. But uh, the thing about a highest authority is we all have one. So if you were to filter all your life decisions through what seems best to you in your mind, like what makes the most sense to your intellect, then I would say that your highest authority is actually your brain, that you have made your brain the arbiter of all truth. If someone in here says, no, that's, that's not really me. Actually, I, I just go with my gut. Like what my feelings are telling me. I let my, my heart lead me. Well, then I would say your emotions or your desires have become your highest authority. Or say you have a scholar or professor, there you go to man or woman. When, when they say it, you trust it. Well, you guessed it. I'm gonna say that that's your highest authority. They have become the person that you reference as, as your mic drop, the person that you reference to end all arguments. What I am saying is that everyone in this room has something or someone we bow to. Yours might not be Jesus. It might not be his word, but you do bow to someone or something. And for the Christian, we don't bow to our feelings or desires that shift constantly. Does anyone else remember middle school? Like, praise God, you did not build your life off of the desires and feelings you had in middle school. Amen? Because they changed, right? Like, I don't wear all khaki every day anymore. Like, we've all grown. We're being sanctified, right? Right? And we also don't bow to the minds or intellects of others or ourselves, right? That our minds or others' minds are so biased, they're so limited, and they have about 90-ish years of optimal strength before they fade. We come instead, believer, in faith to God through his word. We bow before the consistent Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We bow to the ones whose words outlast our brains and outlast our lives for they are eternal, good, and true. We hold all of our lives and decisions before God's word because it is ultimately trusted. To the believer in here, I have a question that I'd love for you to consider. Has anyone or anything in your life replaced God's word as your highest authority? Is it the opinion of a spouse? Is it some political figure that can just open their mouth and truth just echoes forth? Is it your own intellect? Is it your feelings? If the answer is yes, and oftentimes in my life and in our life, we will have to own that this has happened, we can take heart like the eternal Jesus who sits at the right hand of God the Father offers grace and mercy when we do this and invites us back into uh, his word, back under the covering of his word. So first, when we approach the scriptures, they to be ultimately trusted. Second, the Bible is to be regularly engaged. We see this prescription all over the Bible. Specifically, we'll just look at jo- Joshua 1.8. God says to Joshua... This book of the law must not depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you'll be careful to do everything written in it. If you and I, believer, are to become a contrast people, then we must have contrast habits. Just like highest authorities, everyone has habits and practices that shape us. Think of two that we see all over the U.S., connection and consumption. So first, connection. What's the first thing you look at in the morning when you wake up? What's the last thing you look at before you go to bed? Where does your hand start to reach the moment you feel awkward? Are you standing in line? It's your phone, right? Like We constantly want to be connected, and this practice, this habit of constant connection to our phones and distraction from the real world around us leads and shapes our lives. Right? We struggle to focus. We can't listen to someone who's talking to us for longer than five minutes because we feel our phone buzzing in our pocket. We struggle to stay present. We exchange the real for the virtual. And this is true of both young and old, right? It's not just a young generation thing. It's an older generation thing. I would show you my Facebook timeline as proof. (laughs) Or consider not just connection, but our constant consumption, like 24-hour news, email, Snapchat, Instagram, podcasts. Audible, constant, constant scrolling, just over and over. Every kind of media, every kind of screen. I was guilty of this the other day. My sweet bride, like it was my day off, and the connection or the election craziness was happening, and I was just glued to my phone looking at all of those maps and reading all those articles. And Katie was like, Can you just put your phone down and just be with me? And I like, she had to tell me multiple times because I'd be like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like, Look at more maps, like a dummy. Um, but this reality of constant consumption isn't just like it's a reality that the makers of the content know themselves. So Netflix CEO in 2017 was interviewed, and they asked him, "What's the 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 biggest rival or enemy to Netflix? What's the biggest competitor to your company?" You know what he said? He didn't say Amazon. It wasn't Hulu. It was Sleep. Netflix realizes that for some of us, the only time we stop consuming is because we are too tired to keep our eyes open. We are people who are constantly connected and constantly consuming. And I'm not dogging any of those things in particular, right? Like, I listen to podcasts, I have emails on my phone. My goal in pointing out these practices is not to bring condemnation on you or to make you feel guilty. What I am trying to bring your attention to is that we are a people who seemingly do whatever it takes to avoid being in a room alone with just ourselves and God. None of these habits are in and of themselves sinful, but every one of these habits are formative. These constant patterns over time, day in and day out, shape you and I. But the good news is, The Bible offers other habits, new practices that also form us and shape us over time. We need to regularly and daily engage with the Bible and hear what it has to say because we are constantly hearing other rival stories about who you are, about who God is, about what's true and what is fake. You hear other voices that'll lie and tell you that your family of origin will determine the rest of your life. Voices that say you are what you do Voices that say, God can't be trusted. Voices that say, you don't need accountability. You don't need community. And the voices that we hear the most typically tend to be the ones that are easiest for our hearts to believe. God is so much more beautiful, holy, righteous, and kind than your fears and your imaginations paint him to be. If you only let your imagination paint your picture of God, it will be inaccurate. To the believer here today, I have another question that I'd love for you to consider. Has another voice crept into your heart and mind that you are listening to more regularly and frequently than you are listening to the truth of God's word? Has another voice crept into your heart and mind that you are listening to more than you are listening to the truth of God's word? if one has, praise God for his mercy to forgive us. And that his word is literally like daily in our own language, just waiting to be read, waiting to form us, waiting to shape us by the power of the Holy Spirit through God's grace. So first it's to be ultimately trusted. Second, it's to be regularly engaged. And third, it is to be humbly obeyed. As we approach God's word, regularly, with, with faith in it and that it is our highest authority, we must, we must have a posture of humble obedience. You and I need humility when we come to God's word because there are going to be times when you, you're reading your Bible and it's going to look you in the face and tell you you're wrong about something. And if we're not careful, we'll just ignore that part of Scripture and form our own canon, our own Bible God talks about this in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, on this idea that we need to come with humility because he's different than us. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The eternal God will disagree with finite humans. God's word enters into every culture and time period and political party. It will affirm a few things and it will critique other things. The same is true of our lives. As long as we are on this side of heaven, in this process of becoming who we already are in Christ, there will be times where we will need to repent, where we will be challenged by God's word, convicted by God's word, but take heart. Like it's in those moments that we're being shaped, it's in those moments that we know we're being formed. Has anyone in the room had braces? Show of hands. Yes. Okay, look at a Man, there's a lot of us. Okay, we all suffered together. There's some uh, community in suffering, I guess. Um, If there was never any pain or discomfort after you took a bite with your new braces, then they were put on wrong. Right? Like you need that pain at the beginning because it's beginning to shift your teeth into the desired position, Right? It's over time, through a little bit of pain here and there, it's shaping you, it's changing you so that your smile goes from looking crazy to looking nice, right? The same is true of God's word. If there are not moments of conviction, of challenge, of repentance, then maybe you're not reading your Bible the right way. If there's never any soreness with your braces, then your orthodontist put them on wrong. If there's never any conviction or challenge when we read our Bibles, maybe we're reading it wrong. Tim Keller has a great quote on this. He says, if if the God you worship never disagrees with you, you might actually just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Our God is high and far above. He is different. He is distinct. He is holy. He has drawn near to give us his word. And sometimes it will disagree with us. We need humility. But it's not just humility that we need as we approach God's word we need a desire to obey our king. James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25 speaks to this. James says, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. One last question, believer. Where is it that you have dug your heels in and refused to obey your king? Where is it that you have dug your heels in and refused to obey your king? Can I just invite you now to to follow what he's calling you to do through his word? Like, his commandments aren't just right, they're actually better than the alternative. And life lived against the grain of God's created universe is not fun for any of us. But the good news, again, is that if you have something that you haven't obeyed with, and you feel worried about that, convicted about that, the good news is that Jesus has already uh, obeyed perfectly on your behalf. We can bring these areas of disobedience, of failure, to God, knowing that we will receive grace and mercy. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So, in our practice of being in the Bible, we have three principles. It should be ultimately trusted regularly engaged and humbly obeyed. The grace of God is necessary for all of this. The power of the Holy Spirit is necessary. And on a quick note, if you've like never read your Bible, this is new to you. You're like, I wanna get into the Bible for myself. Quick note for you, go to Psalm 119. Okay, that's where you'll go this week. there's gonna be 22 little paragraphs in there. Just read one a few times over out loud, pray through it, journal your questions about what questions you have and things you see about God. So Psalm 119. Read it out loud a few times to yourself, pray through that, write down observations like what does this teach us about God, and any questions you have. That'll give you a good momentum of 22 days of building a habit, and on Thursday, we'll send an email with more resources. If you're not on that uh, email resource, just let us know, we can add you to the list. So that being said, what is the win? Like if we do this practice, if it becomes a regular routine in our life, what is the win? The win is not that we just have our noses in this book and memorize it, although those are wonderful, beautiful things that we should do. The win is that as we regularly practice being in God's Word, we get to know and worship Jesus more. Or another way to put it, in daily reading of our Bibles, we don't just interact with something, but instead we hope to have communion with and worship someone Jesus, in his rebuke to the religious leaders of his day, say, you study the Bible, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, meaning Jesus is the one who offers eternal life. And to the non-believer in here, I just would love to give you, if you'd let me, just a quick summary of the whole Bible. like Real quick, we are not going to be here long, I promise. Um This is the story of the Bible that that we're calling our believers to read, but but for you non-believer, it starts with a good, perfect God who created the world out of an overflow of joy and love, not out of need or necessity or loneliness, and he created humanity as the crown jewel of his creation, right, that we were made to know God and to make him known and to love him and each other, and life was good with God, but... You and I, as humans, decided we didn't want to worship God. We wanted to rival God. We wanted his job. And in that moment of rebellion, everything in our world broke. And it snapped. Like, the reason there's suffering, the reason evil exists is because you and I are now at odds with our creator. Because we have abandoned the one who is only good and only loving and only true. And there's nothing you can do to get back. Like, on your own... You're trapped. Like the mountain is too high. It's too steep. You don't have strong enough legs. Actually, the scriptures would say you're, you're spiritually dead. Every other religion would say you got to climb the mountain, get up to God. But the good news of Christianity is that Jesus, who was on the top of the mountain, came down to get us. That through his perfect life of obedience, through his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, like he has made a way back to God the Father, back to what life was like and even better than in the beginning of the creation. And when we repent, that means like turn from our sin, turn from worship of self or something other than Jesus and believe in him, we're back. Like you who are once far off have been brought near. You who are once an orphan are now adopted. You who are once a stranger are now a citizen like all through Jesus' his life, death, and resurrection, and no amount of Bible reading can save you, right? Jesus's life saves you. I'm not telling you, read your Bible so you be saved. I'm saying that Jesus saves you through his life, death, and resurrection. And we read our Bibles, draw intimacy with him, closer to the one who saved us. And we await now the day when Jesus will crack open the sky and come to get his bride, to come to get his church. Believer, don't you wanna live in this story? Like every day, be reminded of God's truth? Are you just as tired as I am? God doesn't just offer us rest and truth through moments in car rides or when we avoid Floridians. Right, Like God can offer us rest through daily time in his word. In a world of confusion and fatigue, we can find truth. And it's not this practice that will save you or make your relationship survive. That was done by Jesus. But by God's spirit is a practice that helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we thank you that in a time of confusion and feeling so tired, we can have daily access to you through your word in our own language that we can read at any time of the day. We confess that we need you to open our eyes to your word, that we might love you more and know you more and worship you more. I ask that we would become a contrast people, a distinct group of men and women who humbly obey your word, who regularly engage it with ultimate trust that it is from you for your glory and for our good. Would you help us, Jesus?